Section 7 of Charles James Fox by Henry Offley Wakeman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 4 The Ministry of 1782, Part 1. From the first time that Lord North had entreated his indulgent tyrant, the King, to relieve him from the responsibilities which he felt were too great for him, George III had had but one stereotyped answer. I will not put myself into the hands of the Rockingham Whigs, who are the enemies both of my person and of the Constitution as I understand it. Any other arrangement I am perfectly willing to accept, but that particular arrangement is out of the question, and any action on your part which must lead to it I shall consider not merely desertion but treachery. Even at the beginning of 1782, after the disaster of Yorktown, when all Europe was combined with America in arms against him, the king could not bring himself to acknowledge that he would have to bow his head to the yoke. On January 21st he wrote to Lord North, On one material point I shall ever coincide with Lord G. Germain, that is, against the separation from America, and that I shall never lose an opportunity of declaring that no consideration shall ever make me in the smallest degree an instrument to a measure that I am confident would annihilate the rank in which this empire stands among the European states, and would render my situation in this country below continuing an object to me. True to this conviction, even when the long-deferred blow fell, and Lord North's ministry was no more, the king refused to send for Lord Rockingham. He still flattered himself that he might get together a ministry from among the followers of Chatham and of Lord North, which would be able to restore peace without granting independence, and Shelburne was the politician whom he fixed upon to aid him in this scheme. In making choice of Shelburne, George III showed that cleverness in dealing with individuals which did so much to relieve the mediocrity of his commonplace character. Ambition ruled supreme in Shelburne's breast. It was no light compliment to choose him out from among the rival politicians of the time, as the legitimate inheritor of Chatham's power, as well as of Chatham's policy, the one man who was fit to become the trusted arbiter between the crown and the nation, and, like a second Aeneas, to save the king and the constitution from amid the ruins of a falling state. Besides, Shelburne had lately taken pains to let it be known that he was against the separation of America from England, and that he did not wish the king of England to be a mere king of the Marathas, with a Peshwa to hold the reins of government. Shelburne, however, was too clever to fall into the trap, a ministry which had against it the influence of the Rockingham connection and the talents of Charles Fox, and would not receive the hearty support of Lord North's phalanx of placemen, was foredoomed to failure. The pear was not yet ripe. He saw clearly enough that his best chance of permanent success lay in becoming the successor, not the supplanter of Rockingham. On the day, obviously not far distant, when the Whig families would have to choose a new leader, the choice must lie between himself and Charles Fox, and between those two, could they hesitate for a moment? On his side were talents certainly eminent, possibly equal, 
aristocratic connection royal favour and an unblemished private character none of which charles fox could claim clearly then his game was to wait he respectfully declined to act without rockingham you can do without me he said to him with commendable frankness but i cannot do without you to satisfy the king's scruple about dealing personally with rockingham the negotiations passed through his hands before rockingham consented to take office he procured a distinct pledge from the king that he would not put a veto upon american independence if the ministers recommended it and on the twenty seventh of march the triumph of the opposition was completed by the formation of a ministry mainly representative of the old whig families pledged to a policy of economical reform and of peace with america on the basis of the acknowledgment of independence fox received the reward of his services by being appointed foreign secretary and lord shelburne took charge of the home and colonial department rockingham himself went to the treasury lord john cavendish became chancellor of the exchequer lord keppel first lord of the admiralty lord camden president of the council burke was made paymaster of the forces and sheridan under-secretary to his friend fox at the king's special request thurlow was allowed to remain as chancellor the new ministry had by no means an easy task before them they had to pass a scheme of economical reform which was certain to arouse the hostility of many of the most powerful interests in parliament they had to restore tranquillity to ireland and they had to negotiate a peace which could not fail to be humiliating and might prove to be disastrous but their misfortunes did not end there in all their policy they were certain of the undisguised hostility of the king and in the cabinet itself of the indirect opposition of the chancellor and before many days were passed it was equally evident that even the whig majority was not agreed among themselves when fox met lord shelburne shortly after the ministry was formed he said i see the administration is to consist of two parts the one belonging to the king and the other to the public he understated the case there were in reality three distinct parties among the whigs themselves shelburne from the first was playing an ambitious game he wished to gain such a decided ascendancy in the cabinet before rockingham's death that he might easily succeed to the chief place with that object he had manipulated as far as he could the cabinet offices when the administration was being formed and could depend almost with certainty on the support of lord camden the duke of grafton and dunning lately raised to the peerage with the title of lord ashburton while the vote of lord thurlow which of course was at the king's disposal was more likely to be with him than with his opponents on the other hand fox though he commanded no vote except perhaps that of the duke of richmond was known to be by far the most influential minister in the house of commons and was the idol of the people he represented as men could not but feel a type of whig principles which if more aggressive or determined was certainly much more effective than that of the whig families at the close of the american war and to some extent in the wilkes case the people had been called in to express their opinions and to exercise their influence upon politics unrepresented they might be 
but if they were allowed to meet at public meetings pass resolutions and put pressure upon statesmen they would not remain unrepresented very long already schemes of parliamentary reform were in the air in all probability this very ministry would have to take up the subject if they survived the perils of the american peace fox was felt on all sides to be the minister of the future the representative of the whiggism of the future and of the opinions and wishes of the populace of the present and he accordingly spoke in the cabinet with much greater effect than the number of votes at his command would warrant between these two opposing sections came the main body of the old whigs of the rockingham connection men who were as totally opposed to organic change or popular government as the king himself who had been brought up to look on office as the natural monopoly of their family connection who resented their exclusion from it as they would resent their exclusion from part of their family property they had espoused the cause of american independence not from any abstract love of liberty but because the policy of coercion was identified with the tory cuckoo who had seized upon their nest they were led always as much by personal as by political considerations and hated shelburne's personality as much as they disliked fox's principles composed as they were of these different and discordant sections the cabinet no sooner met than it divided into the parties of shelburne and of fox while rockingham conway and cavendish tried to hold the balance between them and thurlow artfully fomented the dissensions fox at once saw the game which shelburne was playing and determined to do his best to prevent its success his distrust of the jesuit of berkeley square was ingrained and hereditary twenty years before when shelburne was quite a young man and had attached himself to the rising fortunes of bute lord holland had strong reason to suspect that he had been betrayed by him and charles fox with his chivalrous attachment to his father was not the man to forget nor as the wrong was not his own to forgive they now found themselves the two most prominent men in a cabinet whose chief was moribund and the rivalry between them soon became too keen to preserve even the semblance of unity few administrations have done so much in a short time as did the rockingham ministry during the three months of its existence and it so happened that the lion's share of the work fell to fox upon his appointment to office his friends noticed a change in habits and manner of life as complete as that ascribed to henry v on his accession to the throne he is said never to have touched a card during either of his three short terms of office he hardly ever appeared at brooks he was most attentive and zealous in the duties of his department and put completely aside his reckless manner of speaking so great was his consideration for what was due to the crown that even george the third became somewhat reconciled to him horace walpole is always rather a partial witness where fox is concerned but on this theme he almost rises into eloquence the former fox displayed such facility in comprehending and executing all business as charmed all who approached him no formal affectation delayed any service or screened ignorance he seized at once the important points of every affair and every affair was thence reduced within a small compass 
not to save himself trouble, for he at once gave himself up to the duties of his office. His good humour, frankness, and sincerity pleased and yet inspired a respect which he took no other pains to attract. The foreign ministers were in admiration of him. They had found few who understood affairs or who attended to them, and no man who understood French so well or could explain himself in so few words. The difference must have been indeed great between mediocrities like Suffolk and Weymouth, or men of indecision and indolence like Lord North, and a man of first-rate ability and keen energy such as was Fox when he attained cabinet office for the first time. Since Carteret, there had not been a foreign minister of England so well fitted by his attainments and genius to play a leading part in continental politics. The ministry kissed hands on their appointment on the 27th of March. On April 8th, Parliament reassembled and Fox was immediately called upon to deal with the complicated affairs of Ireland. England's necessity in those days of tyranny was ever Ireland's opportunity and the closing years of the American War had seen grow up in Ireland a strong and united force of public opinion in favour of legislative freedom, which it was impossible for England to resist. Led by Grattan and supported by the organisation of the volunteers under Charlemont, the Irish nation demanded freedom and self-government. Legislative subjection, apart from legislative union, had ever been the policy of England. By Poyning's Law, the Declaratory Act of George I, and the Permanent Mutiny Act, Irish law, Irish administration of justice, and the Irish army were all made subject to the control of the English ministers. The repeal of these measures, the grant of self-government to Ireland, which, without impairing the authority of the Crown, should take away the control of the English Council and the House of Lords, was being ardently pressed upon the ministers as the only alternative to complete independence. On the day of the meeting of Parliament, April 8th, a debate on Irish affairs was introduced by Mr. Eden, the secretary to Lord Carlisle, who had come to England to tender his own and his chief's resignation. Thinking that the Lord Lieutenant had been unhandsomely treated by the present ministry, he determined to embarrass them as much as he could by suddenly demanding, as the only security for peace, that the whole of the Irish demand should be at once granted. Fox replied with great skill, pointing out the factious nature of the proposal, and promising that Irish affairs should receive the prompt attention of the ministry. On May 17th he redeemed his promise, and brought in a bill for the repeal of the Declaratory Act of George I., which he advocated on the general ground of the injustice of legislating for those who were not represented. At the same time, a motion was proposed which authorized the Crown to make such administrative changes as would carry out the policy of self-government adopted by the Irish Parliament. Thus, by the combined action of the two legislatures, Ireland received the legislative freedom which he was demanding. It is interesting to notice that Lord Loughborough was the only member of either House of Parliament who voted against the most revolutionary proposal which had been brought before Parliament since the Revolution of 1688. The Duke of Portland, who succeeded Lord Carlisle as Lord Lieutenant, 
though strongly disliking the alteration was convinced that it was absolutely necessary the powers legislative and jurisdictive he wrote claimed by england are becoming impracticable if the irish demands were now refused there would be an end of all government a few days before the ministers had redeemed their second great pledge on may fifth burke brought in his scheme of economical reform which was to diminish and render harmless for the future the corrupt influence of the crown here the ice over which the zealous reformer had to glide was of a much more treacherous description shelburne and thurlow without actually opposing the scheme managed in the interests of the king to cut it down in the cabinet and burke soon found that he could not carry out to the full the programme of his famous speech of seventeen eighty nevertheless the measure though not perhaps complete was an exceedingly valuable one it destroyed a large number of useless posts and effected a saving to the country of seventy two thousand pounds a year but beside this it told the knell of systematized parliamentary corruption it was the first time that parliament had really set itself to put its house in order and to make an honest attempt to cure the evil its passing is no doubt rather the proof than the cause of the improvement which is noticeable after the american war that improvement was due to more than one cause the higher standard of private morality which marked the last decade of the century and the greater publicity of political life through the increased importance of the press had no doubt their share in diminishing corruption but the cause which had most effect was the return of mr pitt to power in seventeen eighty four by so unmistakable a majority it destroyed corruption by taking away the reasons for it since it was sheer waste to shower gifts and pensions on those who were certain in any case to vote on the right side still burke's bill marks the beginning of a new era of purity and it emanated from a ministry who were more free from corruption than any ministry which england had yet seen during the century on the question of parliamentary reform the ministry was much divided rockingham and burke were for leaving things alone thinking that as it was impossible to redress all anomalies it was safest not to attempt to redress any the duke of richmond on the contrary was in favour of annual parliaments manhood suffrage and equal electoral districts on the seventh of may pitt who during the two years in which he had sat in parliament had been rapidly growing in reputation brought in a motion for a committee to consider the reform of the representation and fox supported him on the double ground that the county members had always proved themselves much more independent in character than the representatives of the boroughs and that it was for the welfare of the nation that all interests which had any stake in the country should be represented in parliament the motion was lost by a small majority of only twenty in a fairly full house and the reformers were never again so near victory until eighteen thirty two end of section seven